All right. Okay, guys. <clears throat> Forgive me. I remain quite sick with a, a, a cough and a cold that just doesn't want to go away. It's been over four weeks that I've been sick. But I thought I would uh, do a uh, quick public X spaces. And then for those of you who wish to ask questions uh, or, you know, have a discussion, then you can uh, subscribe to my exclusive feed where I will then set up another X spaces only for subscribers. So this will be about, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes. I'll just be sharing some ideas, uh, some thoughts, and then we can... Uh, you want to chat we can do so after so i first wanted to discuss what's been going on with the presidents of uh, harvard mit and uh what's the other one i can't remember the other one the third prestigious school oh pen uh which by the way it's it's unbelievable that women are so held back it's basically waziristan at north american universities because it turns out that all of the three presidents of three of the most prestigious universities are women. And so we really need to work harder to give women an opportunity to flourish in academia because they're not getting their fair shake. <clears throat> Incidentally, as you probably might have seen me mention this, there was a study conducted a few years ago where they, uh, the, the U.S. government looked at across four levels of educational attainment, associate's degree, which is half a bachelor's, bachelor's degree, master's, and doctorate across five racial groups. So they were, so the, 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 the matrix was basically a five by four matrix. So there were 20 cells. And in each of the cells, they had the ratio of male to female that had graduated. And so, of course, if, you know, uh, American universities are a hotbed of misogyny, then you would expect all 20 cells to have men uh, outnumbering women. And of course, the data showed that for every single one of the 20 cells, 20 out of 20, so for every racial breakdown across every level of edu educational attainment, women outnumbered men. And so, of course, the conclusion is we need to redouble our efforts to offer women more opportunities. Now, I say this not, uh, of course, somebody might think, oh, but, you know, are you rejecting the fact that in the past there was misogyny? Yes, there was in the past, but there isn't anymore. And therefore, honest interlocutors will adjust their narrative in function as a function of incoming new evidence, right? You, you don't hold on to the same narrative irrespective of how things have changed in the field. And yet... I receive endless, you know, celebrating women, women in business school, celebrate, right? It's as if, you know, women are absolutely being trash, are given no opportunities to flourish. And that's, if anything, today, we need to be looking at making uh, universities more hospitable to young men, many of whom are deciding that uh, getting an education is no longer something that they're interested in, which is never a, a good thing. Okay, so let's uh, first begin by talking about uh, Claudine Gay, whom I had never heard of until her uh, testimony uh, recently in front of uh, Congress. So yesterday, some of you may have seen, I'm going to read it uh, verbatim for you. So this is Derek Johnson. 
who is uh, the 19th president and CEO of the NAACP. And so uh, my man, Derek Johnson, put out the following tweet yesterday. Enough is enough. Harvard President Claudine Gay is a distinguished scholar and professor with decades of service in higher education. The recent attacks on her leadership are nothing more than political theatrics advancing a white supremacist agenda. Ooh. And so late at night, when I should be just resting and allowing my cortisol levels to go down, I said, okay, I can't put up with this kind of bullshit. So I wrote back to him very politely. I think now let me just check the, it's almost at 2 million views, the tweet that I put out. So let me read it for you. Dear Mr. Derek, uh, you know, whatever his name, uh, at NAACP, let me offer some rebuttals to the points that you raised in the spirit of the free exchange of ideas, which by the way, Harvard scored last on out of 248 universities surveyed by the FIRE organization, the Foundation in Individual Rights and Expression, uh, which I'll come back to in a second because I want to talk about that study. So Harvard, out of 248 universities, ranked dead last out of 248. 248 out of 248 schools. So let me start. Number one, President Gay is not a distinguished scholar using objective bibliometrics. She has an H-index that is well below what is typically required for someone to be promoted to full professor. And so I thought what I would do right now is uh, spend a minute or two just explaining what uh, the H-index is for those of you who may not know what it is. So typically in academia, the way that you would measure someone's uh, productivity is twofold, right? How many, you know, original works have they produced? In, in some fields, it's largely peer-reviewed, um, you know, papers in academic journals. <coughs> Excuse me. In other disciplines, uh, books also are very important. So you can take all of the totality of papers and books that you've published. So that would be one metric. That's a measure of productivity. But of course, two people can have the exact same number of papers published, but one of, one of them has 10,000 citations, meaning that their work has been cited 10,000 times by others, whereas the other person has 1,000 citations. So even though they've produced the same number of publications, uh, you know, one has had a lot more influence in terms of shaping other people's work. So that was historically sort of the, the main way by which you would judge uh, someone's academic CV in terms of you know, productivity and influence. Of course, you also can measure uh, the prestige of where they publish, right? So if they're publishing in journals that are highly prestigious, you know, I, you, know you may publish five papers in really A-plus journals. Someone else may publish 10 papers in C journals, and the former might, might be more impressive than the latter. Okay. And then uh, about, I think, 16 or 17 years ago, I think it was in 2006, uh, Hirsch, who's a physicist, I think, out of UCSD, introduced the H-index, which really tries to offer a more uh, adequate measure of someone's influence as an academic. So take, for example, someone who has uh, 10,000 citations, okay? Uh, but 
one paper has 9,990 citations, so it's a home run, and then the totality of all their other papers have 10 citations. So this, so basically this one person has a singular hit. And so if you only looked at number of citations, you would think, wow, this is impressive. But really, it's just one, just one paper that, that generated much of their citations. So what the H-index does is it lists all of your publications in decreasing order of number of citations. So let's say if your most cited paper has 100 citations, your second most cited has 80 citations, your third most cited has two citations. So now notice that the number of citations is less than the rank, right? Two citations is less than the, the rank three. That means your H-index is only two. You follow? So H-index has become the, the standard measure, and there are all sorts of other bibliometric measure that you could use. Uh, there, there are all sorts of variants of that that you know, tries to create a, you know, a, a fairer measure and so on. But this has become kind of the standard measure. What is your H-index? So you can go on Google Scholar, look up someone's profile. By the way, Claudine Gay doesn't have a profile. Most serious academics will create a profile because people want to know what, what your bibliometric scores are. She doesn't have one, so she's hardly a distinguished scholar. But in any case, it was hard for me to, calc to to look at hers. But, you know, I've heard someone say that her H-index is 8. I came up with an H-index of 10. What does that mean, basically? That means her first 10 citations or 10, her first 10 publications have 10 or more citations. But then by the time she gets to the 11th publication, it has less than 11 citations. Therefore, she basically has an H-index of 10. Now, how does that look in terms of distinguished scholar? Well, different disciplines have different uh, standards in terms of what constitutes an impressive, uh, you know, bibliometric CV. But on average, you can say that, you know, most fields, you know, you better have an H index of 20 just to get promoted to full professor. And actually, I'm being here very conservative. In many cases, it would have to be you know, much, much higher than that. So not, not to introduce myself into the mix because uh, I, I don't really want to compare myself to President Gay. That might be impressive for her CV, not mine. But my H index is 35. Now, this is not a linear measure. So if her H index is 10 and mine is 35, and by the way, it's... Mine would have been much higher, for example, if I didn't work in a discipline that has very few people, because remember, I work at the intersection of evolutionary psychology and consumer behavior and psychology decision-making, and there actually aren't too many people who apply evolutionary theory within those fields. I, I pioneered that field. And so, if anything, it's an underestimate of what my bibliometric influence would be. So, if President Gay you know, is this distinguished scholar who got tenure at Stanford and Harvard with that bibliometric score, then I need to be quickly made emperor of the world, okay? Now, I know postdocs, right? So postdocs would be people who, uh, you know, just f finished a PhD and now they're doing a postdoctorate to try to, you know, uh, have a better CV 
so that they could then apply for assistant professorships. There are postdocs in many disciplines that have a much more impressive academic CV than President Gay. So, so regarding the first point, no, she is not a distinguished scholar. She's an astoundingly mediocre scholar, and there is no way using the standard bibliometric measures someone like President Gay should be getting tenure at Stanford and Harvard. Now, let's talk about someone who did get tenure at Harvard. Uh, Roland Fry was an economist who was at Harvard, who I think was the youngest tenured professor ever at Harvard, or I, I don't know if he was the youngest black tenured professor. Uh, he, he happens to be black. He's done a lot of uh, research. He's an economist. He's done a lot of uh, data-driven research where he has demonstrated that many of the victimology narrative, you know, there is a genocide of black people by the police in the United States are simply not true. And, you know, there's nothing better than data to dispel a particular narrative. His narrative was not one that certainly President Gay, when she was the dean uh, of his faculty at Harvard, would have supported. Uh, and uh, eventually, as you know, you know, he got into trouble for apparently making some sexual innuendo jokes or something that created a hostile environment. And I don't know if he's been fired of, from Harvard or if he took a leave, but his H index, I, I checked it earlier today, is I think something in the, in the 50s. So again, by if we're using objective bibliometrics, then this gentleman who is no longer at Harvard you know, is exponentially more accomplished than President Gay. Okay, so let's dispel the first statement made by uh, Mr. Derek Johnson about, you know, it's white supremacy that people are attacking her because she's just, she's basically, she's indistinguishable from, you know, Da Vinci, Newton, Einstein, and Darwin. I mean, you know, and anyone who disagrees with that you know, it's just clearly because they're white supremacists. Okay, so let me go on with point two of my rebuttal. President Gay is not a distinguished administrator's, administrator as she has spent her entire career promulgating the DIE cult, diversity, inclusion, and equity, which violates every fabric of the meritocratic ethos that one would expect from Harvard. If you, if by the way, if you look at her research, you know, Black this, black that, black, 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 black. Every single paper is about some racial thing, right? Now, as some of you know, if you've read The Sad Truth About Happiness, in one of the chapters, I talk about the importance of seeking variety for a happy life. And I get into intellectual variety seeking. And I basically argue that it is truly regrettable that in academia, Professors are taught to be stay-in-your-lane professors, be a hyper-specialist, keep publishing in exactly the one narrow field, and never expand your horizons to other intellectual landscapes. Whereas, you know, I've published in medicine and in politics and in economics and in psychology and in marketing and in mate choice and in evolutionary psychology and in bibliometric, which, by the way, has... People have used that against me. There were universities that wanted to hire me at various points, and they came back to me and said, well, your CV is very impressive, but it seems very frazzled. You're all over the place. So from one side of the mouth, universities talk about wanting to promote interdisciplinarity, but from the other side of the mouth, basically, no, 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 don't just be a narrow thinker. 
And in the case of President Gay, my goodness, is she narrow. Every single thing revolves around skin you. Never out of that. Black this, black that, black this, white this, and so on. All right. So is she a great administrator? Hardly that. She is a complete die bureaucrat, which, by the way, die is an absolute cancer to the human spirit. All right, number three. This is in my rebuttal to, to the NAACP guy. Number three, some very serious repeat allegations about plagiarisms about plagiarism have been levied against her across many of her works, including her dissertation. Unless you think that plagiarism is an inherent part of white supremacy, then it is difficult to see your point. Plagiarism cannot be contextualized. Because now Harvard's coming out, well, you know, it depends, plagiarism, who are we to say, right? Like, put on your postmodernist hat. You know, it's all relative. Well, it turns out uh, Christopher Rufo broke the story, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, that, you know, there's tons of passages in many of several of her papers, in her dissertations, full, complete passages, fully lifted. So let's suppose it were uh, an accidental thing. Sometimes you, you take a passage, but then you, you forget, you know, th th there should be a very, very clear procedure by which you make sure that you never get it wrong. Uh, for example, if I take a quote, I put it in a different color and I right away put it in quotes that way, there could never be a mistake where inadvertently I somehow forgot to cite it or quote it. But let's suppose she had done that because she didn't have the proper discipline. Well, you can't do it across, you know, half of your papers, across your dissertation. But apparently, uh, it is white supremacy to argue that she plagiarized. So how could you now ever punish someone at Harvard, a student, of, from plagiarism if the president supposedly engaged in it and there are no repercussions to her. By the way, I caught a doctoral student several years ago engaging in just the most outlandish plagiarism. After I filed the case, you know, wasted several weeks documenting everything, they got back to me and said, okay, well, here's, the, here's what we're going to do. She has to redo the exam. And I said, no. I mean, if, if she doesn't get expelled for that, then there's no point in having a code of conduct, an academic code of conduct. And all you're doing by asking me to give her another exam is you've just added several weeks of additional work for me. So I get punished for her having cheated from A to Z. So it is truly uh, grotesque when universities say that they're all about academic integrity and then they look the other way when someone does violate it. Number four. She was unwilling to deontologically condemn the open hatred of Jews on campus. Instead, she had to, quote, contextualize it. Do you think that the repudiation of Jew hatred is a form of white supremacy? This, again, is part of my rebuttal to, to this gentleman. Uh, now, here I want to bring in something that some of you may have heard me mention before. Others haven't, and so it's worth repeating. The difference between deontological and consequentialist ethics. Some of you who've read The Parasitic Mind know about that distinction because I talk about it there uh, in, in the book. Deontological ethics are absolute statements. So if I say it is never okay to cheat, never, then that would be a deontological statement. If I say, well, it's okay to lie if I'm trying to spare someone's feelings. If, if, my, if your wife says, do I look fat in those jeans? And you say, no, you've never looked more beautiful and you're lying, well, 
then from a consequentialist perspective, it might make sense for you to lie if you want to have a happy marriage, if you want to spare the feelings of your spouse. But when it comes to the truth, when it comes to freedom, when it comes to foundational principles, they have to be by definition deontological. So there is no contextualizing, scamming, you know, all of your work and cheating and plagiarizing, right? That's the currency of academia is is the unique and distinct ideas that you contribute in the pantheon of knowledge. If someone else just takes it and steals it, well, that's a very serious uh, offense. So that's that's that. And so I wrote, then I wrote, I'm almost done with this uh, tweet. You do a disservice by invoking the boogeyman of white supremacy here. President Gay is being criticized for her behaviors and positions. The only ones who have ever cared about her skin color are those who repeatedly promoted her to positions that she is unfit to hold. God damn, that's a mic drop. But then, get ready. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Then, of course, I turn it around and I use the victimology currency of all these idiots. And I said, be careful to accuse me of white supremacy as I am a Lebanese Jewish war refugee of color. So I outrank you and President Gay in victimology poker. So if he were going to come and say, yeah, yeah, but you're a white supremacist, now he's got to think twice about it because surely you don't want to be attacking a child refugee of color. I'm a Jew of color. Uh, let me, And then I wrote, let me tag Bill Ackman, the hedge fund billionaire who's been really active in going after uh, his alma mater, Harvard. I'm sure he'll enjoy this exchange. And as I said, this uh, rebuttal, very polite rebuttal, I think, very measured based on facts, uh, has gotten over 2 million views. Now, let me just mention one thing about uh, Bill Ackman. Uh, I love that he's getting so involved. I love the fact that uh, you know, he, he's someone of, of great influence. He's obviously somebody very wealthy. And so, you know, the more people that decide that they want to contribute to addressing the, the cancer within our universities, hey, the better it is. He's activating his inner honey badger. But here is one lesson that I think, uh, and again, I'm not trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, focus on Bill Ackman, but it represents a, a, a regrettable part of human nature. Bill Ackman did not get involved for the past 30 years when I was standing on top of the mountain screaming like the lone wolf about all of the problems that now we're seeing at Harvard and every other university because it didn't affect him personally. But when all of the anti-Semitism started making its way you know, across Canadian and American universities, he's Jewish, when it, it hit Harvard, his alma mater, when President Gay is acting the way that she is at his alma mater, then he felt compelled to to speak out. And I think while I commend him for, you know, it's better better late than never, I think that what we need to do is, you know, lend our voice precisely when it doesn't specifically affect us, right? It's Jew hatred should not matter to you only when your son Mordechai is picked on in, in, in the high school yard. That's not the only time that you decide you should care about this, right? So if you follow the ontological principles, then you should be weighing in on these issues, uh, you know, in many, many contexts where it doesn't personally affect you. That's what makes you courageous and, and heroic, right? When someone is crying in, a, in an alley because they're being attacked and raped, 
you don't say, oh, wait a minute, is that my daughter? Is that my, my, my sister? Is that my mother? Is that my wife? No, then who cares? Let's keep walking. You don't only go into the, the alley to protect someone, uh, you know, if they're your wife or sister or daughter. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that Bill Ackman has joined the fight, as have many others. But uh, I wish many of these folks would have joined earlier. And I hope that now that they have joined the fight, they won't suddenly uh, uh, recuse themselves, you know, once they think the issue has been addressed. There is an endemic, persistent, endless cancer that has made its way through our universities, hence my book, The Parasitic Mind. And, uh, and it is incredibly important for the wealthy alumni to, to really come in because, you know, I, I fight through the tools that are at my disposal, which is in the battle of ideas. I can write books. I can go on shows. I can contribute uh, in offering superior ideas to all of the parasitic, you know, bullshit. But ultimately, administrators listen to one thing only. It's the green money. So when a donor says, you know what? You keep this up. Say goodbye to my $100 million donation. Suddenly, the administrators' ears perk up and they suddenly pay attention. Because administrators are actually not part of Homo sapiens. They're a unique species. They're, they're invertebrate castrati they have no spine and they have no testicles that they're that that's literally their default phenotype and therefore the only way they can find a spine the only way that they can uh, have some testicular fortitude is if it hits them where the only place that it matters to them which is money 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 and so more power to bill ackman i hope more people join in that very quick story about um Harvard, a personal story. That's the that's the good juicy stuff you get when you join these X spaces. And remember, folks, uh, I'm not opening up right now for uh, for people to speak. It's a sort of one way hosting. But if you do want to contribute uh, to the conversation, then please, after this talk, I will set up a X spaces for my uh, uh, subscribers. In any case. Uh, in 1993, I was invited uh, for a campus visit to Harvard. So the way, the way it works is when you're about one year away from finishing your PhD, you go through several rounds, academic rounds, where universities interview you for assistant professorships. <coughs> Excuse me. In the first round, universities interview you at, in, in a hotel, at a conference, and so different universities will be in different rooms and then, they'll, you know, okay, Northwestern is in room 307 and they'd like to see you at 11 o'clock, okay? And usually what you do is you go into these different interviews uh, and you talk about your doctoral dissertation. You know, what's the topic about? You know, how far along are you? When do you plan on finishing? And so on. You're pitching basically your, your research stream stemming from your doctoral dissertation and anything else you've done in your PhD. And so you go through... The first round uh, and then you know some of the universities may decide you know you're one of their finalists and so they invite you to second round interviews which are typically a campus visit where you'll go to the university you'll give a talk in front of the faculty uh, which you know can be quite uh, harrowing uh, if you're not confident in your abilities because you're you know you're 
you're you're this young doctoral student and you have to speak in front of all these big famous professors and then usually the professors will host you one-on-one -on -one in their offices you know you they, you know you'll, you'll visit the school and so I, I had been fortunate in that I was, uh, you know, I was doing well in the market. I had been invited to many of the top first round uh, universities, you know, many of the prestigious universities. And then in the second round, I'd been invited also to several, you know, many universities uh, of which one of them was Harvard Business School, which was really, you know, the Mecca in terms of, you know, glamour, right? Like glitz, glory, right? It's, it's, it's Harvard Business School. I mean, I remember in 1993, their, you know, their endowment, just the business school was probably more than the GDP of some com countries. I, I'm not, I'm being literal. Incredible opulence, incredible, uh, well, as I said, glitz. Uh, now, I do recall that there was something that had struck me as problematic when I was on my visit to Harvard. At one point, I was asked to sit in on... Uh, a meeting that is held by all of the professors who teach the capstone courses in the first year MBA. So for example, at Harvard Business School, there might be in, in year one, eight sections of you know the, the, the introductory marketing course, a marketing course, right? So there are eight different sections taught by eight different professors. And so each week, the eight professors would get together in a kind of a coordination meeting where they agree on every single syllable that's going to be said in the next lecture, every single thing that's going to go on the board, you know, what is going to be the key lesson for whatever case you're analyzing. What, And so there was very, very little room for, you know, individual contribution. And so right away, I was thinking to myself, uh-oh, as someone who is rather irreverent to authority, as someone who is very much an out-of-the-box thinker, I thought, boy, if I get this job, and, and I already knew that I very much wanted to, you know, to work, you know, in, you know, applying evolutionary psychology to economic decision-making, to consumer behavior, how would this fly? But yet, I was still enamored by the idea of going to Harvard. Now, as it turns out, I didn't get the Harvard job. I had heard from inside sources, so this is 1993, 30 years ago, that I did not get the job uh, because it turns out that I don't ovulate. Although, of course, we know today that men too can ovulate. But at the time, in 1993, uh, I couldn't ovulate. And so wokeness had already seeped into Harvard back then. So that's my Harvard story. Uh, now I want to spend a minute or two. Uh, I'm almost done, but I just want to talk about two more things. So remember, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to uh, discuss the FIRE survey, the Foundation uh, of Individual Rights uh, and Expression, well, I can't remember the acronym, uh, that they just released. You can go and check it on their site, FIRE, F-I-R-E. Uh, the, the guy who, who heads it, Greg Lukyanov, is someone who has been on my show. He was uh, someone who came on my show many years ago when I first began my show. He, of course, wrote the book, uh, The Coddling of... Uh, I think the American mind with uh, Jonathan Haidt. And so I looked at the ranking. So what they did is they, they sent out a survey to 55,000 plus students. So this is a very exhaustive, exhaustive survey uh, across 248 universities spanning the whole spectrum of prestige. And I think 
I, I can't remember the exact methodology, but I think they they quantified 13 variables that capture, you know, how open the university is to alternative ideas, the, you know, heterodox ideas, you know, that the, they don't deplatform people and so on and so forth. And as I said, out of 248 universities, Harvard ranked last. But what I wanted to do is look at, well, is there a correlation between how prestigious a university is and how poorly they score on the ranking? And boy, is there ever. So I'm not, so not going to report here the actual statistical results. I'm just going to kind of share with you. So I circled here the eight Ivy Leagues. So uh, Ivy League schools, uh, and by the way, I'm associated to two. I did my MS and PhD at Cornell, and then I was a visiting professor at Cornell in 2000. And then I was also a visiting professor at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. So I am, you know, through and through an Ivy Leaguer, but uh, I'm, it, it, gives, it, it gives me great pain to share the results. So the highest ranked Ivy League school scores number 69. So remember here, number one would be the best school in terms of free inquiry and freedom of speech and heterodox views. So, and number one is some very non-prestigious school. I don't remember, like a Michigan Metropolitan University. I, I can't remember the name, okay? But it's certainly not a prestigious school. So Brown is number 69. Now, just to give you a few non-Ivy League schools, but very prestigious, MIT is number 136, Caltech, 144, Berkeley, 147, UCLA, 169. Now we come to the next Ivy League school, Princeton, number 187. Now, 187 out of 248. Okay, this gives me great pain. My own alma mater, Cornell, number 212. Columbia, 214, Yale, 234, Dartmouth, 240, Penn, 247, and Harvard, 248. Boy, is that some telling statistics. So remember, we just had the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and Penn uh, appear to testify in front of Congress. And they score some of, I mean, literally Penn and Harvard, two out of the three schools, score the absolute lowest on freedom of speech. So the more prestigious and elite the school is, the less tolerant it is of any ideas that, uh, you know, don't fit the, the parasitic spectrum. That's not really a good thing. And then I just want to, one last finding, and then I'll wrap it up and I'll thank you for your attention. This is actually a study that I cite in my uh, in the parasitic mind. It's from uh, Langbert, 2018, where he did a study looking at the ratio of Democrat to Republican affiliated professors across many disciplines. It's absolutely astounding. You have fields where it's 130 to zero. In other words, there isn't a single Republican professor in that discipline across the 51 universities. <coughs> Excuse me. But he, today what I want to talk about is one of the figures, figure four from that study. Uh, by the way, let me just read you what the title of the paper is. Homogeneous 
colon, the political affiliation of elite liberal arts colleges faculty by Mitchell Langbert, 2018, published in National Association of Scholars. Okay, so now what he did is he broke up the ratio of Democrat to Republican as a function of the prestige of the school in question. You follow? So, so you've got tier one schools, the most prestigious schools, tier two, tier three, and tier four. So remember how earlier I, sh I talked about the FIRE survey that showed that the more prestigious a school is, the less open and tolerant it is to alternative views. And so here I'm trying to make the same point, right? So here is the ratio. So if the ratio were one to one, that means there's as many Democrat professors as Republican professors. If its ratio is three to one to Democrats, there are three, three times as many Democrats, right? So you ready? Tier one. You ready? You're sitting down. 21.5 to one, meaning there are 21.5 times more Democrat professors than Republican professors. Tier two, 12.8. So it's a massive drop. Tier three, 12.4. So there's not much of a difference. And then tier four, the least prestigious group of universities, it's still incredibly lopsided, but it's 6.9 to one. So meaning the difference from the most prestigious schools to the least prestigious schools is three times worse in lopsidedness if you go to the elite schools. So not only are the elite schools complete and utter echo chambers when it comes to political orientation, but they're also the most intolerant of uh, alternative viewpoints. Uh, that should make everyone uh, very, very queasy, and especially so when some of you here that are listening to this chat are going to be paying $65,000, a year for your students to learn feminist glaciology and queer architecture. All right, guys, fantastic. It took about 38 minutes. I was hoping to not go any more than 30 to 45 minutes. Thank you so much for your attention. If you wish to be part of the discussion, please consider subscribing. I'm now going to set up a uh, uh, X spaces only for subscribers. But of course, feel free to add your comments in the thread and hopefully that itself can start a conversation. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for joining. Talk to you soon. Cheers.